0: Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate.
1: Great, good afternoon everyone. Welcome to the last RSA event of the year. Uh, My name's Josie Warden. I work as a senior researcher here. So it feels like it's a it's a bit of a truism for whoever sits in this chair doing the, doing the review of the year to say, well, just when we thought it couldn't get any weirder. Um, but it really, it really has been an extraordinary year. So I'm delighted to be joined by a fantastic panel of commentators to reflect just on the ins and outs of what's happened this year and to think about where we are as a nation and a global community. Um, for today's discussion, uh, we're going to steer clear of some of the Westminster uh Theme. Um, it's been a year that's really been dominated by politics and headlines. So we're thinking of this year at the moment about some of the things we may have missed from the year. Um, and some of the uh, yeah, headlines that may have gone a little bit under the radar. Um, Obviously, it's also not only the end of 2019, but also the end of the decade. Uh, So it's a really perfect time to be reflecting on where we are and maybe where we need to go forward in the next few years. Um, So I'm joined by a brilliant panel to do this. We have um, Kajela Dedra, who is the UK Director of Change.org, the world's largest online petition site. Um, In her book, Do Something, Activism for Everyone, she talks about really practical ways that we can all get involved in making change happen. And has worked on some fantastic campaigns, including the uh, petition to end the tampon tax and the work with the New Era Housing Organisation. We've also got Scott Bryan, TV critic and broadcaster um, and co-host of the Radio 5 Live must-watch podcast. Um, And Scott writes extensively around uh, British TV and pop culture. And finally, least but last but not least, um, Anish Chakalian, um, Anish um, British editor, a uh, British editor at the New Statesman. Um, he specialises in features on British politics and uh, social affairs and also co-presents the New Statesman podcast. And I'm sorry, I did get your name slightly wrong then. <laughs> I knew I was going to do that. Um, so there'll be pa- uh, time for questions from the audience at the end, um, but I'm going to start off by asking each of you in turn just to give us your kind of top reflection or top theme from the year. And I'm going to ask, if you start with casual, please?
0: Thank you for having me. Um, so we, uh, so Change.org, we're a petition platform where anyone can start a campaign, and our mission is for everybody to have the ability to be able to have their voice heard. Um, and um, we have 17 million users in the UK, um, but actually only a small percentage of those users start the petitions. Um, so, but we get hundreds started every day. So I, when I was asked about this, I was thinking about the, some of the trends that we've seen on the platform. And um, the last few years have obviously been dominated by Brexit. And I am going to mention Westminster a couple of times. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, it's hard not to. Um, it's been dominated by, by Brexit. And I think from a public's point of view, it's felt like, and also just civil society point of view, it felt like nothing's getting kind of moving in, term, in terms of domestic policy. Um, and just, the, you know, what, what actually affects our day-to-day lives. Um, But what we found is that more petitions have started this year than ever before on our platform. And just reflecting a little bit on why um, we think that is. So 2018 um, uh, was a real year that plastics took off on our platform. So it was uh, shortly after Blue Planet. And I think that there was a real shift in how people felt, uh, the agency people felt that they had. All of a sudden, they realized that they could do something about the oceans. They could cut plastics. So we saw so many petitions calling for the local pub or hospitals to cut plastics out. Um, And that felt like the year of individual action. This year has felt like that that individualism turning into community-based organizing. And so we've seen the youth climate strikes, Extinction Rebellion. And so what I think of that, I I think it's kind of the year that we've gone beyond plastics, gone beyond individuals, and actually started as a society going, we actually need you, government and people in power to take serious action. Um, What's also uh, striking to me, so whilst we've kind of had this uh, Brexit deadlock, um, we did an analysis of our petitions on our platform and found that even though men start more, women under 35 are winning more. That that seems right when I think about all the campaigns that we have um, touched and work on and are coming across, that we've got amazing groups like the Pink Protest. We've got individual um, kind of young activists, like uh, a young person called Bella Lack, who's I think 16, and she's an environmental activist. She's got a million followers on every single platform now. Um, And then um, people like Amica George, who's um, been campaigning to end period poverty. and then we also we did a um we did a survey um into our users say, asking them whether they felt heard on brexit um since the referendum. And um only seven percent said that they had. And so what my kind of summary of this year is that it's really been a year of people power, more people starting petitions, young people, women taking matters into their own hands and winning. We're not necessarily always hearing about them because Brexit is dominating the news so that we don't actually see that, you know, McDonald's and Burger King are committing to ending plastics in their Happy Meals. <laughs> um, and these are all campaigns that have been started by young women on our platform. Um, but also strikingly that uh, people feel like Parliament's not listening to them. And um, we, so we did, a, uh, we did a load of research the last few months and... Um, we basically uh, analysed all MPs in the last Parliament, and, um, and 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 looked at how engaged they were with the public. Um, MPs don't have a job description, and so we don't like. What do we? What is a good MP? You know, if you want to be an MP, what what are my guiding kind of um, principles um, beyond my party politics? Um, And so we did an analysis into um, how how engaged they were in constituencies, their surgeries. You know, did they write back to people? How much were they mentioning their constituency in parliament? How much were they attending debates? And we called it the People Power Index. um, uh, And we launched that uh, last week um, uh, where we're basically just rating all MPs based on um, uh, 10 different factors. Um, And you can find that on our website. Um, And we intend to do that every year now and just kind of basically being a, at least then having some kind of, for people to have some kind of voice in saying, this is what we need from our politicians. Um, So yeah, I think it's been the year of people power.
1: (laughs) Great, thank you. I think it's really interesting you're saying around this sort of maybe shift in leadership of where some new leadership is coming from. Why do you think that has happened in seeing that in your platform?
0: I I personally think that... um People don't feel that politics is accessible to them. And so um, even me, as somebody who works in politics, I honestly wouldn't know where to start if I thought I wanted to be an MP. Um, I don't think it's very um, tangible and accessible. And I think there's almost a bit of of a, uh, it's shrouded in mystery. You know, you get a bit of a tap on the shoulder if you want to be a part of the party. And so, uh, but people care passionately. They've got the internet. And um, so they're taking to the internet to speak out. They're also seeing other people win. So they, you know, uh, women on banknotes, no more page three, ending the tampon tax. So young women are seeing other young women speak up, have an impact, and they're realising that they can do it too. So often what we see is um, we worked with these amazing two young sisters who are, um, I think, uh, eight and ten. And uh, on the McDonald's Happy Meals, um, McDonald's Burger King Happy Meal campaign um, to end plastics, Got the BBC on board. It became a huge campaign. Um, there was a documentary crew following them around. They ended up winning, um, and since then we've had so many young kids starting petitions on our platform. There's one to get Crayola to um, be um, environmentally friendly, um, and she's getting loads of publicity. And I think she's, I think she's eight. Um, it's incredible. So, so I think when you see yourself in up there doing things, then you can, you know, that you can do it. And I think that's the important thing about representation.
1: Yeah, you can kind of imagine. You can imagine, imagine that it, imagine. you see it's possible. Great. Thanks. And Scott, what about you?
2: So I think it's been a really quite interesting few years. I mean, I don't know about you, but whenever I turn on my TV, I mostly go, oh, God, there's so much of it. Where do I start? And it's because it's, we, we are going through a moment at uh, this time when there's such a massive proliferation of, of, of content. And i have been writing about TV for about 10 years. And when I started, there, there was Sky, there were all of the different dig, digital channels. But you didn't really have that much choice in terms of the fact that if a show was really popular in the US, you would have to wait essentially six months until it's available to watch in the UK. Um, there was always sort of a feeling that, you know, there wasn't really that much change happening and then all of the changes seems to have happened all at once and a lot of it is down to Netflix and a lot of it's down to Amazon and a lot of it is also by the way that we are just going onto to the internet we expect to have the same variety of stuff from uh, what we um, can find on the internet reflected on TV so what we're seeing at the moment is uh, a <laughs> amazing and and fascinating sort of creative battle between the existing channels, BBC ITV Channel 4, to really thinking hard about how they can create a hit that's not just big in the UK, but also around the world. Whilst at the same time, you're having massive US giants with essentially limitless pockets who are just swooping in talent, even British talent, to see if they can get it and make shows of themselves that will be in 140 countries at the same time. And I think it can be a great battle. Like, the battle can be the fact that you have new perspectives, you have new shows. I always see TV as very much like a mirror. That if an issue that you're currently facing in your own life, or you know somebody else's, is is reflected and depicted accurately on screen, that you feel validated, and it can be a great step towards yourself and others getting help. And I think we've seen many shows and documentaries that have done that in the last year. But uh, and and that is, you know, a a really phenomenal uh, change that's happening. But also at the same time, the bad side of that battle can be that it creates a real challenge for those broadcasters that have been around for a long time. And I think if you're asking a lot of you people, let's say in their 20s and 30s, they all might have a subscription to Netflix because it's 7 dollars $8.99, and it has everything that they can possibly have. But they might be thinking, well, why am I continuing to pay for a TV license that has a lot of shows that might not be exactly for me anymore? And then you're having broadcasters that are, you know, public service broadcasters that, you know, trying to do everything um, to try to get everyone's interest in and I'm finding it increasingly hard to do so and there was one show that really took me back by the fact that Amazon are spending um, something like two-thirds of the entire of the B- what the BBC spends in, in, in a year on one show and that's The Lord of the Rings upcoming series and that's not just on filming it that's on the rights that's on the um you know the 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 shooting and the making and all of that that stuff on one show so you're sort of thinking you know, if 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 you're working at the BBC, you're thinking so much harder about how can you create a hit? And that's and that's sort of a challenge, I think, going into next year. It's brilliant, it's exciting, but my God, it's also really bewildering.
1: Yeah, really challenging. I think it's really interesting. what so you're saying it sort of ties with what you were saying yeah. around the representation of kind of being able to see yourself the, the proliferation of the kind of content means maybe people can see themselves more reflected in some of that content. Do you think that's maybe where some of the kind of more established and older broadcasters are struggling as well to so kind of tap into different different kind of groups of people? Well, sort of. I mean, I, I think the
2: actual strength that the BBC and Channel 4 and, and the existing broadcasters have is that they have a tried and tested method of knowing that actually what is a real success and what to do to really resonate with audiences is yeah. so just get the best writers in. Yeah. I think a lot of the US um, uh, things are, are just going along the strategy of let's just keep throwing money at yeah. it, let's keep throwing money at it. Like there's a show called The Morning Show, which is yeah. on uh, the US, which is... Essentially, a billion-dollar soap. It 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 really is. No, it's awful. It's so bad. I watched the first episode, and I was really into
0: it. Having said that,
2: I've watched every episode because it is so bad. (laughs) Um, And uh, what I love about it is, uh, but like you know, with with the BBC, you know, I think even though it is technically a co-pro, it was done with Amazon. But like, for example, the second series of Fleabag. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was you know brilliantly acted with uh, Phoebe Waterbridge, but also brilliantly written by her as well. And you know, I think people and and viewers from that really touched them far more than expensive, Lavish Show would, because it cuts deep in their emotions and says something about where we are. And I think it's, it's I think, it really interesting about, uh, you know, that, that's the advantage that they have, is basically finding new talent and bringing new opportunities in. And also they have a more of a public service interest in terms of reflecting where we are as a country. Um, but at the end of the day, they might be tempted by the deep pockets and the international reach that a lot of the other larger broadcasters have
3: interesting, great. And then Anoush, finally, what are what are your thoughts? Um, so I, when I was asked to come on this panel, and thanks for having me, um, I was trying to think of a trend that I'd identified this year outside of politics <laughs> and that was quite a challenge for me because I've been sort of uh, entrenched in this stuff, unfortunately, for, for quite a while. Um, but what I did think when I was looking through some of the reporting that I've been doing this year was that I've interviewed more children and pensioners than ever before and I was wondering why that was. Um, and actually, I was sitting in a very cold church hall in Hartlepool a couple of weeks ago, the joys of uh, election coverage, <laughs> waiting for a Hustings to begin. And the two people, I was interviewing people in the audience to ask them why they were there and what they wanted from their candidates. And the two people who were most interesting was a grandmother who'd, who'd brought her 15-year-old um, grandson. Actually, it was the other way around. Her grandson has t- had taken her. And, I, you know, I made that assumption. And, and then they explained to me sort of why they were both there. And I thought that really reflected this year um, because mainly because of some of the things that cadwell has been talking about, the um, Extinction Rebellion protests. Go along to one of those and you'll see so many people from older generations who are there, you know, because they have the time, but also because they're so fearful for what's going to happen to future generations. I interviewed a couple of men who are grandfathers who have been starving themselves outside Tory HQ um, for the extent of this election campaign. They're on day 25 now. And I said, you know, why are you doing this? And they said, well, how can we look our grandchildren in the eye and tell them we didn't try and do something? And what they want to do is speak to Boris Johnson and other party leaders about their manifestos and what they say about net Zero carbon emissions. How none of them want to get get them reduced by 2025 to, to net zero. Um, so that was also really interesting. And another pensioner who I've interviewed was a retired police officer who you know left finished finished his time in the service in Metropolitan Police last year, and then immediately joined Extinction Rebellion. So <laughs> a bit of a defector there. And he knows all the tactics as well. So he's he's really a good one to have on side. Um, and he was saying the same thing. You know. Um, that he'd managed to flourish living in this city and working in the city, but he just didn't have the same optimism for, for future generations. So. When we, when you think about that, and then you go to the youth climate strikes, so I went to go and cover one in Sheffield and see all of the children, school children actually, um, who are there, some from primary school, speaking with megaphones. They're so articulate. They're really engaged. They're also really angry as well. That's really striking. And these children who I spoke to in Sheffield were supposed to be revising, some of them were supposed to be revising for GCSEs and other summer exams. And to have the commitment to to go and... and uh, campaign for something that feels sort of often frustratingly distant um, or something that you feel like you can't change is is a real shift in mindset. I mean, I interviewed an MEP who, who represents the area, Majid Majid, I don't know if you've come across him, he's a Green, um, when I was there and he was saying, and he's only in his 20s and he was saying, uh, what was the quote, when I was their age, not turning up to school, I'd probably be getting up to some mischief. I wouldn't be coming to on a political or a social uh, rally. Um, So I think that's really interesting because it's bonded um, two generations that otherwise I think are often ignored by our media and also by politicians um, and also aren't necessarily thought of in sort of society to be. To, to have the same causes or to uh, culturally um, have the same outlook. Um, and I think that's a big shift in the sort of intergenerational battles that we've seen in the previous few years, and um, particularly sort of the quite nasty um, narrative stemming from generational inequality. Um, how baby boomers have shored up the wealth, while millennials don't—you know—have a hope in hell of owning a house, and they pay a third of their salaries in rent or more. Um, and actually, millennials face much higher housing costs relative to their incomes than their parents did at their, their age. And they're now half, half as li- likely to own a house when they're thirty as baby boomers were. And that sort of brought about this maybe quite bitter divide between those two generations. Um, what I've labelled "avo blaming" or "avo shaming" in a piece that I wrote for. <laughs> (laughs) For for the new statesman, we're also doing a decade in review there. And mine was A is for avocado. And actually, this is some voices from older generations, not everyone, but some commentators and property developers saying that younger people have, um, you know, been extravagant because they spend all their money on smashed avocado on toast and flat whites instead of saving for a house, which they definitely could do. Um, And that's obviously not true. And it sort of produces these wounds between generations that politicians, I think, in all parties have failed to heal. And obviously, we've had that divide stemming from the EU referendum result and ensuing elections that shows that people are often voting along generational lines rather than class or party lines um, these days. Um, And as well as that, um, I think that there's there's a less happy similarity among different ge- generations that i've noticed in some of the reporting that i've been doing which is the epidemic of loneliness so we've had stats out this year among older uh, uh, about older generations and also about school children where it shows that we're we're seeing record levels of of loneliness among both of those groups and particularly with young people uh, with mental health crises um, and there was some YouGov polling in September that said nearly one in ten Brits simply have no friends at all um, which is <laughs> quite a a striking figure, and I think that trend goes hand in hand with something that we've been covering at the New Statesman in a series called Crumbling Britain, which is sort of the change in fabric of our communities as public spaces close. So not just austerity, which has closed libraries and community centres and youth clubs and (coughs) reduced funding for local charities that have those, those spaces where people can go, but also the private sector, with market forces bringing about the decline of the high street. So there's just simply fewer places for people to go for free and to be with other people in their communities particularly in terms of meeting people and talking about their views with people from other generations and i think that's why that hustings when i was speaking to those two people it felt like a bit of a rare occasion where a young person and old person were expressing their views in this sort of shared environment and actually that's happening more on the streets in grassroots protest movements than it is in more traditional spaces so i think that's the big change
1: well i'm glad to know my avocado habit <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah it's not even <laughs> um, I think, obviously, we're thinking about what's happening now. It's uh, not just the election, but COP25 is happening in Paris, uh, sorry, Madrid at the moment. Um, and it sounds like there's something about those external forces, the environment, there's conversations about plastics that are bringing people together. Do you kind of see that carrying on? And how can that kind of swell with Syngresa been named Time Person of the Year yesterday. Do you feel like this sort of intergenerational piece is going to continue around uh,
3: justice around the environment? I think it is actually. I think it's a good lightning rod for that for that bonding between generations. And actually, to to sort of combine what both of you were saying, I think it's there's a mainstreaming of this climate consciousness that's happening. For example, there's a show on BBC inside the supermarket about Sainsbury's because it's its 150th anniversary, and that was a real reflection, a real mirror of what we're doing these days because they're getting more and more people people getting angry about the plastic packaging and sending it back to their hq they have a special sort of lab in their hq where they usually get back things that have like mites in them or some gross thing but actually now they're getting loads and loads of packages that are just the plastic and angry letters saying you don't need to put celery in this Um, and so that's 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 on mainstream tv on bbc on a very cozy program and that's reflecting a shift um, in the way that we're trying to trying to do one little thing to to try and help this situation.
2: Um, I think it was a shift as well. So, for example, if you're comparing, let's say, Attenborough documentaries at the start of a decade, I think there was this high... Um, the idea that the BBC had to go down this idea of putting up climate up for debate constantly, and yet you have to have a debate with, a, you know, climate... Uh, climate Denier. And I know that's still bubbling on, but I think when you watch the One World, Seven Planets, or, if it's, or is it Seven Planets, One World? You always get mixed up about the name of that show. It's the most confusing name ever. You literally saw climate being at the real heart of the show mm-hmm. at the start and throughout every 10 minutes with it being fact-based and not having climate as a debate at all. And I think that has been the real shift, I think, where it's now you know, pretty much reflected on screen about people's frustrations, but also in that desire to change is kind of being reflected on on the nation's broadcaster.
1: Yeah. And how does this kind of the bubbling of anger and concern kind of shift into into action, do you think? And how are you kind of seeing that develop on?
0: We're seeing more young people take to um, social media and our platform to start campaigns they are more they're angry they're fed up of not being listened to and they're finding the tools to and they're finding that people actually want to support them and so their voices are being amplified so so you know the, some of the biggest petitions that we've got on the platform are started by young women um from eight years old to you know 18 years old um and I think that there's also something about for young people there's something about their values being becoming their identity now and so i think perhaps because we are losing our public spaces loneliness is real not just for older and people but for you know people in their 20s 30s 40s like it is real and um you know we are become we are more separated than ever um and i think the places that they can come together is online to um you know to you know find other people who resonate whose ideas resonate with them who who are able to kind of you know um, share images of you know body positivity and you know so they are finding communities i think online and um and it's saying something to their identity so it's giving i think it's giving them a purpose um and i don't think that's going to change i think that's going to need to continue um with climate change, I just, um, I see. Uh, it's interesting because since the climate emergency declaration in Parliament, we've not really seen that much more. And um, I mean, who knows what's going to happen with this election? But I, um, I think that the extinction rebellion is kind of, you know, that, that's and the school strikes has all kind of come to a little bit of a standstill. And I hope that that can, that energy continues. But I don't mean to be pessimistic, but I just worry that it's too late. <laughs>
1: yeah it's a real challenge um and
0: and perhaps that's what's happening is that you know we're all just realizing it's too late and so now everyone's going hang on you know just you know I didn't mean it (laughs) like and then trying to take back and so I I I actually you know personally think that we need to see drastic dramatic action um but the media is savvy and knows that everyone is feeling angry and urgent about this and so we're seeing a lot of content everywhere about it
1: I kind of wonder as well if there's we talked quite a lot about here about I, uh, identity and the positive side of that being able to see yourself represented maybe, maybe you haven't been previously but I wonder as well if there's also a kind of splitting then of groups and so it, within your own own area you get very angry or frustrated about something but how is the how do we kind of make sure that those silos don't end up repeating themselves in sort of different fractions and how do we make sure we kind of bring this collaboration that comes together as well because I guess with with the kind of content side do you think people are um, sticking within their own, we you know I hear a lot about you know, being in your kind of social media bubble. do you think there 's a challenge around kind of content being shared across different groups of people as well
2: hundred percent yeah i think we 're in a problem at the moment where I think all parts of our life are so fractious in terms of on social media we only tend to people, uh, we only tend to follow people who we who we like who we agree with um, and it's, and it 's the same case on um, Facebook and on twitter it 's kind of the case where you 're not having that real re- reflection of different views, and I think it 's quite I mean, sadly, in terms of the fact that I I grew, up, I, grew, I grew up in Dorset and I used to work in the, the um, a, a newsagents and you used to sort of see a great variety of people over the course of the day. And, you know, you also see the people, in terms of we were talking about loneliness, who wouldn't be able to speak to anyone else just part of their day because, you know, their relatives are far away and you used to do errands for them and they'll be a part of the community. And I now go there and that shop's gone. And then I know that, that that's it now. And then I think to myself... You know, it's so hard to know about what it's like in in other people's shoes if you're never able to see them. So it's kind of the fact that at the same time, we're having this proliferation of content in the terms of everyone's got their own interests, great, there's a TV show that reflects your interests, but as a result, I think it's quite fragmented in terms of the stuff that everyone watches collectively. I think there's fewer and fewer moments. Live events, I think the exception, so are sports, but it's so much harder to have it... A place where you can't avoid but having to watch it, and it's that feeling of being challenged. And even if you watch, like for example, the news coverage, I find that I'm not really watching shows like Question Time anymore because I just go, "Well, I've had a long day. I've seen a lot of anger on social media. I'm just going to watch some, like The Crown, in, instead." And then you and then you realise that that show that was supposed to be accountable for everybody is only going to be watched by some certain um, people. And I think it's that that lack of clarity in public discourse in just in terms of hearing other people's views, we're seeing less and less of. And I think that's worrying. So
1: those are public spaces that you maybe, you and you were talking yeah. about, they're public spaces online or in your community watching something on the television.
3: Is that it's something exactly. you want to... I think, you know, um often we sort of slightly pompously refer to sort of uh, the internet as, as an example of the public sphere. But actually, I don't think it really reflects the traditional public sphere in the sense of what you were talking about with the news agent and you help out this person. And, you know, that that as that's sort of declining on our high streets and also in the sort of um, public service run places that I mentioned, it's nowhere online really because we can just decide which community we want to tap into. In fact we're not even making a conscious decision are we? we just, the algorithms feed us what we want to read and what we want to see and, and amplifies our friends and our um, sort of allies' voices and so we don't, we don't see the opinions as much of other people and also we should close ourselves off to it. We don't want to because we're so comfortable in this bubble. I mean one good example from Question Time which I, <laughs> I assume you didn't watch but you saw the clip of um, was the man um, who who was earning over £80,000 salary and he really didn't realise there was a sort of moment of epiphany on television, which is quite extraordinary, that he was in the top 5% of earners. Um, and a lot of people mocked him online or said that he was out of touch. But actually, that's a result of the fact that we are surrounding ourselves more and more only with people socially, but also on, on online socially, who are the same as us, who earn the same as us, who have the same outlook on politics as us, um, who have the same backgrounds. And that means that we assume ourselves to be the norm. And I think that's a big problem, particularly this year, I, th- I think, where we've cl- closed ourselves off to the problems with inequality that there are, are in this country. So there was a very good dispatches on Channel 4 about um, children um, who are going hungry um, and living in poverty. Um, and you know, a lot of people online, I wrote about it, and a lot of people online who were replying to me were saying, well, one of the, you know, there was someone who replied to someone else who was tweeting about it and said, why don't they just use an arga to heat their house? (laughs) Um, But I mean, that's an extreme version. But a lot of people were replying to me saying, you know, actually, if you look at the stats, poverty's going down. And, you know, people just don't want to believe it, partly because it's such a horrible thing to have to reconcile in your brain, um, but also because we don't have that personal experience of it in our lives and we don't hear from those people who are from those kind of backgrounds because we close ourselves off, we're blinkered. Can
0: I say something
3: um, just on the flip side of that? It's like, I wonder...
0: Haven't we always just kept to our own tribes and kept to our own kind of uh, you know class and uh, social circles that don't really you know we if I think about like my mum my mum and dad's generation um, the people that they um, interacted with and their friends interacted with were very much you know factory workers other factory workers um, and I wonder whether you know I. One of the reasons, one of the ways that I t- t- say to people, you know, you should get involved in activism is the community you find. And um, there is like, I feel like I have great friends, I have a partner. I feel lonely often in London. It's it's a lonely place. But whenever I go to community activism groups or protests, I feel such a sense of being a human connected to other human beings. And, you know, I, it fills you with hope. Um, And so I try and tell people, you know, that's that's a good way of trying to um, is trying to find community. And I feel like people are doing that more and more. So, you know, if I think about the people that we work with, they are actually one of the things that keeps them going is finding other people, cool other people that they're like, oh, God, this is a new friend. And then they, they, you know, they will continue campaigning about something. But it's partly because also it becomes part of their social life. Um, And I think that's really interesting. Also, what I think is interesting is that this year, just thinking of TV and what's, you know, the country watching things, uh, the country watched Parliament Channel more than they've ever <laughs> yeah. done. Like their viewing figures went shooting <coughs> up the roof this year, the Parliament Channels, and uh, because the because of the big debates that we had, and I thought that that was really interesting because for the first time. Uh we really had the public looking at what was going on inside Westminster. And so you had a lot of people countries other outside of the UK mocking the way that the British MPs talk, um, lots of impressions of John Burko, you know, and like talking about the kind of you know, the, the, the weird curiosities of our parliament. And um and one thing it made me think was that. We really need to open up and update our politics because some of the issues here about, you know, UK poverty and, you know, they're often, the, the agenda is set by, and I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but it's set by a small group of people, you know, uh, a small group of people in parliament, a small group of people in media. And um, and actually until our parliament starts reflecting our society better, I don't think that that's going to change. And so I really... Um, hope to see the kind of the interest in parliament continue next year and maybe I mean I'm seeing people standing this year for for election that had never even I'd never even considered that they would so that's exciting to me
1: yeah it feels like there's that awareness of the power imbalances and where the power is and isn't is very, feels very live at the moment. And I think seeing, seeing the kind of difference that people feel between what they want to achieve and what politicians are kind of enabling them to yeah. achieve, but also things like the, you know, in a couple of years on from the Me Too scandal, the kind of Jeffrey Epstein stuff, the Prince Andrew stuff, I think seeing there's a recognition of where the power imbalance is. Do you feel like there's really much kind of actual action on that happening? Or does it still feel like we recognise it, but we're not necessarily kind of acting on it? Or do people feel like there's enough action happening? Do you think?
0: I, I, so when the Prince Andrew story happened, we just saw a lot of content start. A petition started, um, Queen you know, calling for him to calling for other companies to, you know, discontinue their sponsorship with him. I mean, I think that the internet has just shifted power um in the country and um and for good i think that we're then seeing more diversity in policy making so you know the issue of for example the tampon tax and period poverty they just would not have gotten the agenda if it wasn't for young women forcing that on the agenda by basically just you know, gathering the support of hundreds of thousands of people and then female MPs in Parliament going, I'm going to help you. And then, you know, that them using that partnership to push. And, and that doesn't just, you know, do something about period poverty and the tampon tax, but it also starts a conversation about periods. It also forces MPs in Parliament to say the word tampons. And there was a really <laughs> amazing moment where they just refused, male MPs refusing to say the word. Um, and that... You know, so it's just like I think. I think of the power um, shift as as like really pushing and forcing some people to just you know progress.
2: I think with sort of like the social media, it allows people who are in positions of power who have done really bad things to, I think find less ways of getting around of it. I think, like, before they used to have PR agencies and companies who would be able to kind of keep a grip on the media, but also a grip in terms of everything that they do or or say when when there's bad things that have um, happened. But now I think thanks to social media and people bravely opening up about the experiences that have happened with them, it's creating that dialogue to allow people who have done bad things to be, I think, put on a a pedestal more. The problem is, is that it's probably not going... Um, uh I think the, the, the issue at the same time as that we're having is that with journalism, having so much issue in terms of cutbacks, but also issues in terms of, you know, maybe focusing on the daily or reflection of what's just happened on Twitter that day, rather than investigative reporting and chasing people of power, particularly that uh, people who might have done wrongdoing uh, might be very well... Um, uh supported financially by lawyers and legal teams, that it is still that power that we're having and which people who should not be having, uh, who are still getting away with it, I think are still able to get away with it. And that is the the, the issue that we're facing, is just that we've had a great movement that has achieved so much. Um, but it's, it's still the case that we're still having bumps in the road where people aren't getting um, pushed off, essentially.
3: A key point of power is the ability to capture things as they happen and, and frame the narratives yourselves if you're just a, a, a normal citizen online. So we've done a story at the New Statesman about how lots of candidates haven't been turning up to their hustings. Sorry to keep bringing it back to the election, but it's a bro- broader point. A it's a broader point. Um, and, you know, certain um, things that usually should be public, you know, that people are tr- they're trying to keep people out because if a candidate says something stupid. In the past, it was just someone saying something in a church hall and a few disgruntled voters. But now, you know, you've got it on your smartphone, it goes straight yeah. to Twitter and everyone retweets it. And that is that is really powerful. And there, there have been things said about people with disabilities in this election that have those stories have come from those kind of moments. And that's that's a key change in the way that the electorate can, can um, uh, you know, engage with politics and also shape it as well. But as well as that, there is a big problem with the speed of stuff that's put online and picked up, Um, I went to go and cover the story of the um, people who died suffocating in that uh, lorry in Greys in Thurrock. And when I was there, I interviewed a lot of the lorry drivers around the area and they're all telling me what they'd seen and and the kind of experiences they had. And I interviewed a younger guy who was uh, working cleaning cars in the area. And he said, oh, well, they've released the driver now. He didn't do anything wrong. I just thought, no, they haven't. Like, I've just spoken to the police like at the cordon. They definitely haven't. And I went online and this story on Facebook posted by just a completely, you know, n- n- random account had said that he'd been released. And all these people had been, you know, sharing it and amplifying it online. And this young guy, probably more engaged on social media than than with traditional news sources, had repeated it back to me. And I just thought, if a lot of people think this, you know, that's quite dangerous because we know what happened with that news story in the end um so i've noticed a few things like that and um, particularly on the doorstep as well with people repeating back spurious claims that have spread very far and wide online and i i'm always hesitant to use the phrase fake news because i'm of the opinion that we've always had fake news particularly with some of the more um hysterical tabloids spreading stories that are very damaging to the fabric of of society but um the speed and the scale in which this happens now, um, I find quite worrying in some of the stories that I go and report. Yeah,
0: I think when, when, when
3: the one, it would be, uh,
0: we, we would, if we're talking about the year, we have to talk about Facebook and we have to talk about uh, the tech giants. And, um, and I think there's been some really great work by... Uh, uh, a few people in Parliament and a few um, internet organising groups to try and pull some of these um, tech giants to account, particularly around the Cambridge Analytica story, and um, and then around you know uh, election propaganda for the both the referendum um, and then in the US. Um, I think that we. We need to. So this is just less of a reflection, I guess, and more just like a. We really need to uh, quickly, as a as, as a country, uh, do something about both misinformation on social media platforms, um, but also um, there has to be some kind of regulation. And they, at the moment, it kind of has felt like the tech giants are just a bit too smart for the for the government to actually catch up. Um, GDPR was a really good, an important move from Europe. And I think if it's going to happen anywhere, it's going to happen on our side of the Atlantic. Um, But yeah, I think, I just think that's just, and interestingly with Facebook, it has also affected journalism. Mm -hmm. And um, and it's also affected, you know, so um, our platform, we, um, until three years ago, we uh our business model was advertising so we would have big charities and um, organizations having sponsored petitions on our platform and um that's how we got our revenue and we just could not compete with facebook and um and so we just like the guardian we shifted our business model and so now we're completely powered by people uh from like as little as like three pounds a month Uh, people keep us going and it has worked and that's exciting because Industries are dramatically changing because of social media. Mm. Um, and that's fascinating. So, yeah, TV as well, right? Subscription. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Subscription's so fascinating.
2: Yes, yeah. I mean, I think I think the whole change towards subscription has been really fascinating as well because I think people just go, oh, it's only a few quid. What yeah. can that hurt? And then it slowly builds up. And I think yeah. the issue that we're having is with new rivals entering the market, people are only going to go, well, I'm only going so yeah. to spend
0: 30. So that's going to get to a limit. What limit subscriptions is an individual expected to have? Or, or you know, do, do we think that they have the capacity for... Because if I think about like music, TV, then things like news like subscribing to Guardian or New York Times and then we're asking them to subscribe to us Wikipedia like yeah. there's a lot and then there's flower services yeah. <laughs> like you the know yeah.
2: stuff sent through the mail yeah, yeah. the other day I, like I got a company being like we'll send you one pair of socks a month yeah. or, like yeah. through the well if I'm wearing odd socks that would probably be quite a beneficial yeah. thing but it's but I think it's um, I think like having individual subscriptions is brilliant for the consumer because it gives them that flexibility yeah. and, and you know for example in the old days you'd have to go with Sky for example and they'd be like right you're locked in for a 24-month contract, so it's going to be impossible to go and get out of that. And now, if the content's not on offer, you just go. Oh, I'm just going to give up now. I'm going to yeah. put. The, um, I, I'm, I'm going to quit. But the issue is, is that there is a saturation point. And I think, for example, you know, we've got BritBox that have come in with BBC and ITV. And I think there's arguably too little, too late in terms of mm-hmm. the stuff that they're offering because essentially what they're doing is, 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 is shows to um, essentially repeats of shows that you haven't necessarily got round to watching yet. Um, but they're also competing with Netflix that have got. Lots of money and Amazon that's got lots of money. So it's it's trying to kind of get into that practice of habit um that they hope that you don't notice that you're paying for them. Yeah. But you also wonder it's about
0: like yeah. it is yeah. like a
2: gym membership, it truly is. But it's also that's
0: the new business model of, the, of our of our <laughs> I times, I know. I know gym. <laughs> yeah, 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 pretty much. Yeah. But I think
2: there's There's definitely a bit of a bubble because I think what's really interesting is that um, what you're seeing in content is kind of what you're seeing on uh, what you've had had on social media. So Twitter and Facebook have essentially become monopolies in terms of Twitter, in terms of, you know, um, daily thoughts and the way that you would sort of share messages. You only really go to Twitter. Facebook for pretty much all of your friends stuff. You're having it with uh, content in terms of that Netflix and Amazon want to become the big pipe. They want to be the place where all content goes through uh, because that's where the money is in the same way that Facebook has managed to become a billion dollar company. So that's why you're having them spending so much money, Apple as well, trying to create and control that funnel because that's where the money is. But the, but the issue is, I think, um, to get to that point, they're all spending a hell of a lot of money to try to get market share. And it's going to be quite interesting because I keep thinking to myself, are we in this big content bubble where it's pretty much unsustainable? Netflix runs on a massive loss. They're running on loans. Mm-hmm. Um, and the BBC and existing uh, services only have a limited amount of money. They can't go into debt because of it. So it's it's an interesting.
0: What will happen then? <sighs> Whew! <laughs> um,
2: I, I don't know. I don't know. I think... They'll come to the point where I think genuinely there's a lot of Netflix shows and nobody's watching them. Yeah. Um, and it's and they're
0: throwing money, right? Because I heard a, a few comedians on podcast say Netflix is just throwing money at comedians. Do they just want lots of people to be creating content? They just want more. They,
2: they all want growth. They just yeah. want growth. They just want market share because they hope that if they control, if they get the market share then they, they will have people have that commitment to be on them for 30, 40, 50 mm-hmm. years and it's having that longevity. So they're like, right, got to spend a lot of money to make a lot of money. So So they're kind of having that for the time being, I think that um, what's really interesting also, and this is a problem with the internet, I think in generally nobody's, nobody's saying how many people are watching their things really. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you saw yesterday, oh Netflix, oh we released, um, you know, twenty million people watch The Irishman, fantastic, da da da. It's like, well, yeah, that's because um, a viewer to you is eighty percent of people who's watched. Um, an overall title and that's just one of your titles from many films that you've released and you've just chosen given us that one a viewer to Netflix is somebody who's watched 80% of an opening episode to a show Uh. and the amount of shows you've given up after one episode and you're seeing all the time um, even the BBC you know saying oh we've got 15 million requests and it's like what does a request mean? (laughs) So it's it's sort of the battle of the big the battle of the big numbers and there's no transparency and Netflix have said oh we are going to be transparent we're going to be on it an evil pe- a level-pegging term, but I think that they love the mystery because, you know, they, they don't have to be transparent no, because they are not an advertiser right. fun business and they love the idea of, oh, we you know, have you seen this show? I've heard a lot of stuff about it without saying it's got X amount of millions of people. Yeah, Could it so show weakness? I
3: think it will be interesting how sustainable that is, though, because just throwing lots of content, a lot of which is quality is quite dubious, at something can grow it for a while, but then eventually people you know cotton on like actually i haven't watched anything in, on netflix all the way through in ages probably cancel my subscription use something else it's a bit like what happened when you were talking about changing your business model it's a bit like what happened in j- digital journalism where everyone cottoned on to the fact that getting loads of clicks could get you more, you know more advertising views and more money and so we had all of these clickbait style headlines that we fed into facebook you know like a machine and got huge traffic out of it and then suddenly the algorithm changed and that wasn't allowed anymore but also people had cottoned on to to the rubbish content that they were reading and now we're moving towards more subscription and membership models in yeah. the traditional media and is just more yeah and long form <laughs> as well yeah, sorry. and and as well as that We've like so
1: much to talk about yeah sorry I'm going to try and open up yeah. to some yeah, of these yeah, yeah. guys <laughs> or we'll be here for the rest of the day which would be great um can I ask for Oh, do what should I do one question at a time is that all right with you guys um and Maybe let's keep definitely the first couple away from the election. Yeah.
4: For
1: a bit. <laughs> so a couple of hands before we anyone. I'm going to go for the lady there at the end, please.
3: Hello. Um, I want to go back to a very basic thing, which Kajal mentioned at the beginning of your talk. You mentioned your work with children. Yeah. Can you enlighten me a little bit as to how you approach that? How you what conversations you have with your company? I'm sorry, I missed the company that you work for. Change. Change.org. Yeah, correct. so it's a petition platform
0: mm-hmm. where anyone can start a campaign. So um, uh, what happens, so you can just go, you could go online, you'd go to change.org and, you know, go to start a petition and you can start your own petition. And um, there's no pre-moderation. So as soon as you, you know, say, like, you know, publish, it's online. And then it's up to you to start sharing that campaign, Um, and that's kind of how campaigns grow. Um, One person will share it and then another person will sign it and share it and, you know, you're basically just relying on the internet and social media.
3: So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned an eight year old and a 10 year old you were working with. What conversations did you have within your company? What responsibility did yeah. you feel towards those children? Yeah,
0: good question. So our actual minimum age for using our platform is 13. Um, so what we uh, ha- what's what actually happened was that their mum started the petition for them. It's their mum's email address at the back, but it will say um, Ella and Caitlin at the front. But honestly, I'm very, you know, I came from the third sector, charity sector, and I was, um, you know, one of the reasons that I, uh, you know, came to change was that I was kind of fed up of case studies being wheeled in and um, people kind of, you know, being the spokesperson and being taken out and not really having much to do with the campaign. And so we, and, and so it's really important to me that we don't work on campaigns like that. And honestly, Ella and Caitlin are running that campaign. Like their mum, sometimes we'll talk to their mum and she'll be like, I just need to check with the girls and I have to run everything by the girls. So it's truly them start running the campaign. So what we do is if they're a young person, if they're under 16, we will just ask to have a chat with the parents. We're a really small team. There's eight of us um, in the UK and um, the um, campaigns team are almost part journalist part part social worker um and so we do a lot of kind of fact checking when we're working on a campaign talking to the person and um checking out the story and then also just like checking to make sure that the person is able to campaign and not in a incredibly vulnerable state um And so with Ella and Caitlin, we just made sure that we had a good relationship with the parents. Um, And that's what we do. We just always, you know, on email, we'll be talking to the mum and Ella and Caitlin. So I used to work for the UK Youth Parliament and and so worked with young people to speak up about the issues that mattered to them. And um, um, but the platform is for everybody. So it's for all ages.
4: Hi, Um, Paul Atherton. I'm a fellow. Um, I'm interested actually in all the panel on this, but I particularly wanted to take uh, Kajal up on her point about mixing environments so i grew up in the south wales valleys and we played rugby and in the team the working class would be the fronts and the middle class would be in the backs and we would be engaged in the pub and you'd have all these cross-referencing and because you're in a social environment you're talking about subjects that cross across and people are suddenly need from the battle, go hang on, and that's not right. And so you couldn't stand up in the way you do today and go, I have an opinion, and find 100 people around you. You'd have 50 people go, I don't agree with you. <laughs> but the question I was going to ask with media, television, and, and obviously on, online, with our world ever diminishing because of algorithms and because of search engines and everything else, do you see a way that we're going to come offline and start re engaging with society in real life again?
0: I mean, so I'll just speak a little bit because I've spoken a lot already, but I um, I think um, the campaigns are only start, they start online, but actually the petition starters are, because they can't just, they need to meet people because you need the confidence of meeting others who've you know have the same views as you to keep on going and so often what they'll do is they'll have meetings they'll have campaign meetings they'll have um you know they'll be doing a um an event in their local area and so then they meet so really there's a lot of online and offline happening nothing really ever just happens online i think even you know with stuff like me too that there was a lot going on on the ground um but we just we can spread the 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 kind of the, the news online a lot easier um but i do see that um people are taking because of loneliness and individualization I think do see people trying to find spaces I feel like we're
3: on the tipping point of that um yeah do you want to yeah no I really liked what you said actually about how um because I was talking about how communities are being threatened the the one that you described in that way if only we had more of those and more spaces for those but you said that you know campaigning on the ground and protest groups and that kind of thing has actually reinvigorated that among other, some people. And you advise people, like, you'll, you'll get a social life or, or you'll get human connections out of this if you yes. do this. And so I really like that idea that that could reinvigorate it. But I think we need more... You know, we can't just do it on our own. I do think that the public realm has been degraded quite a lot because of cuts to to funding lo- local services over the past 10 years and I think without that state support but also without some kind of solution to what's happening to our high streets and our town centres that's going to be really difficult because where do you get those spaces you know it, it's about physical space as well as um, the human will um, and so I would say that the individual's power is is limited slightly in that. Yeah. I, I yeah
2: also a chronic problem that we've got at the moment with phone addiction and app addiction and being on our phones the entire time and I love it in the last year all of these big companies have been like oh we've introduced tools to help you put down your phone so you now get a notification being like you've been on 10 hours on your iPhone this week and it's like sure, fine, here we go no problem yeah. and it's the same with social media but I think that social media can have a really damaging effect in terms of self-esteem and, and, and mental health and the yeah. amount of times I think I mean I've certainly been on social media and you go onto the stories bit or you go on to the, the people's posts and everyone's having a brilliant time and if you're not having a great time, you feel 10 times worse Mm -hmm. and it's, it's a real... Terrible, terrible thing that I think is affecting a lot of people, particularly young people. And I think an issue that we had maybe like 10, 15 years ago were people reading, you know, magazines in terms of having, you know, um, glossy magazines in terms of people who weigh maybe photoshops to look that they're having a better life um, than they actually are. And I think that social media has pretty much re- replaced that to a fashion. One thing that brings me hope, rather than being doom and gloom, is that you've had many people being open mm-hmm. more about their, their their mental health, particularly from men, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's... It's becoming, though, not a case where you... I I don't have a solution to it. I still think it's a a griping problem, but there are some, at least, bits of hope from it.
0: I feel like people are fixing the problem, right? Like, we're seeing the problem and then individuals are trying to fix it. So you've got people like Matt Haig, who's incredible on social media, and then people like Bryony Gordon, Gordon, who's uh, just really body positive, and so when people start getting fed up of something, they then react against it, and then you see kind of like yeah, it's like a seesaw. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: Can I take one? Oh, so many suddenly. Yeah, one from this yeah. side, please. <laughs> um,
4: I'd like to talk about the uh, the loneliness discussion that's just gone on, and actually, I, I'd push a challenge back and say actually, there's um, more opportunities now to meet people. Maybe not the spaces. Well, the spaces. Exists too, uh, and you can say that a uh, sub benefit of the climate uh, protests have been that you have got generations mixing. It's a good example of a shared interest creating it. So, um, and there is a website called meetup.com. If you have an interest, you can find people that share that interest. So, my question to you is: If you accept that thought that there are opportunities to meet other people, how do we encourage people away from Netflix and their phone and out of their houses in the in the pouring rain? To use these facilities.
3: Thank you. Yeah, the no one that, that is probably the easiest and most efficient way <laughs> of attracting people to do things like that is online. So I completely t- take that point.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. How do we get people out
3: out and meeting up?
1: You know what? I think the problem is
2: also work life balance. I think mm. that there used to be, I mean, you know, I, I can only speak for, for, for my own experience, but I think that particularly at the moment, people aren't off their phone because there's demands from work that happen the moment that they leave the office. And as a result, it means that I think the time that people would usually have by themselves to meet other people mm-hmm. is being shortened and shortened. So it's kind of the case that I'm not sure whether, how you can have a solution to that, but it's trying to facilitate more of a work-life balance. And I think employers are getting more wise sort of fact that for just better productivity they need to ensure time like afternoons when employees can partake in other activities that aren't work related but I think in some industries particularly in, in media it's still the case where you're expected to work constantly mm. to go and do things and I think that's why you have a shift towards people watching a lot of TV which is great for me but like <laughs> but, 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 but why people end up watching TV and Netflix it's because they're knackered yeah. because they just get home and they've had a long day at work and they're just going to put a meal together and watch four hours of mindless content and then go to bed so it's so sorry that I'm not having a more hopeful thing but, but you know I like to think that there is a change of attitudes because I think people are getting more collectively aware that this is a problem that Can
0: we're I say something hopeful connected to that yes. is that I think we're seeing some companies uh, move to four-day weeks and there is a conversation happening about are we approaching work in the right way you know um, in my organisation we're talking about so at the moment we have on Fridays everyone just works from home Um, but we are having a conversation where you know the uh, work is becoming more flexible or at least the conversation to becoming more flexible is happening Um, there's some amazing activists um, um, mothers who are talking about you know making it more flexible for mums to be able to um, work and also just like not have to lose them you know step in the career ladder because they have children so I think um I think that hopefully will ease the pressure Um, but also I just think that we've just been hit by the internet it like and we've not really caught up in terms of like training ourselves as a society to how to deal with it and I think that there's a lot that we can be doing in schools with mental health education and you know how to navigate the new world that we're in you know you're like there is, there's so much that's great about the internet, but there is so much that we actually need support in understanding how to navigate. Like maybe the addiction to phones is actually, we're gonna realize is a really, really toxic thing that we're gonna, you know, that has actually had a really terrible impact on us. But we, you know, we're not, we're not giving people the guidance
3: and I think we do need to be sceptical of some workplaces, not saying your workplace is one of these, but there's that cliche about tech companies having sort of all wonderful benefits, but actually it's just to keep you yeah. at work longer, you know, free dinner and, you know, table Seating tennis pods. and sleeping yeah. pods. Yeah. Um, and actually a closer to home example is a friend of mine who's an English teacher was that at the school, they've just um, imposed a no email after 10pm ban. And if you actually think about that, that's telling you, that's telling you to check your emails up to 10pm, isn't it? So you've got to to be skeptical about some of these workplaces measures that's I think terrible. yeah
1: well I feel like we could we could be here one afternoon this is fascinating <laughs> there's so much to talk about but I wonder if I could ask you um, I'm sorry if we haven't got around to your question but I know you're going to be signing books yeah, afterwards sure. so if people be outside so if you want to catch up then please do um, but if we could each you know, thinking ahead to the next decade what is the kind of one area that's going to give you hope that you want to think about moving into moving into the 2020s
3: So My area is what I spoke about at the beginning, sorry to be so predictable, but I've seen the bonding between generations, um, particularly in face-to-face sort of interactions, and I want that to continue. But I'd also like to see more support from um, the state funding, local services, and um, a solution to what's happening to our communities because of the decline of of the high street. So I'd like to see that support.
2: I think in terms of what I'm really hopeful is just the ongoing but increasing amount of creativity and just the, the fact that people can now from their own home I know this is not a new invention but like people can basically start their careers from essentially just a laptop and, and learning skills from, from as they go and I've met so many people who are now so creative in more than just one field like people who are writers who are performers who are, who are on radio who do so many different media because they've had enough experience in many of those I think we're going to have an increase in superstars who are able to adapt to different media as a result, and I find that really exciting.
0: I think for me, so' we've, you know we've I feel like we're seeing more and more people taking action online. What I'd like to see is uh, you know we've, we've and, and we've there's been discussion this year of citizens' assemblies, and parliament maybe you know you know I, I would love for the next year to move that people power that's happening online to more traditional forms um things like citizens' assemblies, so actually that our politics starts feeling a lot healthier and that people that are actually more engaged in politics.
1: Right, I think that's yeah, something I've taken away from all of these conversations is that sense of there's lots of energy bubbling up in small areas but the really important thing is how we kind of bring it all together now, online, offline, different kinds of communities and really focus on that collaboration and yes. bringing things together to kind of make this some of those big changes that we need to see in the next decade. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank I've you. really, really enjoyed staying. here. hope you have too. <laughs> thank you.
3: Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.